Okay, here we go, Genesis uh, lesson number 31. We are going to be reading out of Genesis chapter 16. So open your Bibles to the Genesis chapter 16. Today, Sarai and Hagar's conflict, going to talk about that. Also going to talk about uh, circumcision as we see that practice uh, beginning. All right, so last time we talked about Abram as the great type for Christians. If you remember, that's how we finished. We're talking about types. After his victory over the northern kings and the meeting with Melchizedek, we see Abram asking God for a son and a sign that his promises will come true, if you wish. Something that Abram hadn't done before, he just heard God would say that, but he wouldn't say anything. This time, you know, he's questioning, you know, what about the son? You know, and how do I know all of these things are going to happen? Because there isn't a lot of evidence that the things that God promised are actually taking place. He's getting older and older, no children. Uh, the Bible says that God reiterates the promise of a son in future generations, as well as the specific description of the land promise. Your land, you know, this land, you know, well not just this land, but from the, the river in the north to the desert in the south, from the sea, and you know, he gives them some parameters of where this is going to be. And then in a key passage, we are told that Abram believed these promises, and because he believed God, God gave, or we use this word to impute, He imputed to Abram a moral righteousness. So I made some important points about how fundamental this passage is for us as Christians today. A couple of points. First of all, we said that this passage teaches us that the reason that we are saved is because we are right and holy. Because we're right with God and we are considered holy. That's why we are saved. Secondly, I said that this passage teaches us that the reason that we are right with God and holy is because we believe that He will give us these things through faith in Jesus Christ. Because we cannot accomplish this on our own. We cannot become holy under our own steam, under our own power. We cannot become acceptable to God through our own efforts. And so we believe his promise that He will make us holy and, and acceptable to Him through a basis of faith. And because we believe that, we receive that. Just in the same way that Abram received the promises because he believed that God would, you know, he'd, he'd fulfill the promises. And then a third idea, uh, and I think this is the one that, that I, I really wanted to focus on last week. Belief is a lifelong relationship. We put so much emphasis on the idea you know, that of the moment when the person, a person is baptized. So the person is asked the question, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And the person says, yes I do, or yes I believe, okay. And then they're baptized. And a lot of times we think that belief is that three seconds there where we said, yes, you know, I believe. But in the Bible, belief begins there but belief is really a lifelong, it's a whole process that lasts a lifetime. And how do we know that? Well, because uh, we have the story of Abraham. Abraham, the father of faith. You know? So it teaches us that faith is a lifelong relationship. So some things, you know, they can be expressed in just one verse. 
for example, thou shall not steal. Well, pretty straightforward, right? If you take what doesn't belong to you, that's called stealing. God doesn't want you to do that. You, know, you don't need 500 pages to explain that. All right? Other ideas require a longer time to explain and to demonstrate. So the idea that salvation is based on faith can be said in one verse. But the explanation that faith is, is not just an intellectual ascent, but a lifelong relationship, that takes a long time to explain that because you've got to give examples of that. So the story of Abram takes another eight chapters to tell. And most of the following eight chapters explains this lifelong relationship of faith that Abram had with God. And in those eight chapters, we see ups and downs and ups and downs and ups and downs. And that's the story of faith. That's salvation by faith. I am saved because I believe and I continue to be saved, whoops, when my faith gets weak and I continue to be saved when my faith gets strong and I'm still saved when it gets weak again. You know what I'm saying? And the story of Abraham is the model for, not like my faith has to be like his, it's everybody's faith is like his. We all have ups and downs in our life, in our spiritual life, just like Abraham did. And because Abraham continued to believe despite the ups and downs, he continued to be saved. All right? So in the next few chapters, we see Abram and Sarai live out that faith relationship with God and how it transformed them into godly people. That's the interesting part. This, this relationship, this lifetime relationship of faith is not an end unto itself. It's that the lifetime relationship of faith makes out of us different kinds of people. You know, the night that I said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God in November 1977, it was cold in Montreal and the baptismal water was cold. We didn't have a heater you know, and it was dark in the building. And there were only three people there, me and the preacher and the preacher's friend. That was it. That was it. That's where my faith you know, it was expressed for the first time. But that wasn't the last time my faith was expressed. You, know, you see what I'm saying? And it's not the last time that your faith is expressed either. Okay, so let's take a look at you know, how their life of faith kind of you know, works out here in chapter 16. Let's go to chapter 16, verses one to four. We'll start with Sarai and the solution that she has, or she proposes. It says, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had, been born, uh, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. So Sarai's faith now begins, you know, it was great at the beginning, she followed Abram, you know, she did what he said, and whoops, Abram lied, whoops, her faith goes down you know, to the Pharaoh, and then it goes up again, they go back, and so now she decides, well, you know, I'm not having any kids here, God said he'd give us a, there must be another way of doing this, 
So she concocts this plan. She decides you know, to take action, okay? I mean, seeing that the future is supposed to hold a great number of generations that come from her, she begins to see her own barrenness as something shameful. I guess I'm not doing what God wants me to do. I'm not having any kids. So as I say, she starts to take action. Now originally, to solve a problem, Abram was willing to share his wife with another man. Right? Notice how this works? So now it's Sarai's turn. In order to solve the, this problem, she's willing to share her husband with another woman. Now Hagar was a slave, probably taken when they lived in Egypt. She was an Egyptian. They lived in Egypt for a while, so obviously he probably took her there. According to the custom of the time, she was the property of Sarai, and any children she had with anyone those children belonged to Sarah. Even if she, there was another male slave and they had children together, those children belonged to Sarai. It was also part of the custom of the time to reproduce children, as many as possible, through this type of action. So they did not see this as adultery. They didn't, today we would see this as just plain out adultery, but in those times they didn't see this as adultery. In doing this, however, they really felt short fell short of God's will in two ways. Number one, even though it was the custom and they felt no guilt about doing this, they were violating God's basic command that in marriage the partners were to be one flesh and one flesh only. Now there was no deceit here. There was no you know, sneaking around or anything like that. No deceit. There was no seduction involved. You know, Abram didn't seduce this woman. This woman didn't seduce him. There was no prior lust, as is characteristic in adulterous situations. But they were nevertheless violating a principle that in marriage the two become one and they're not to add any other one, if you wish. Now I make a little parenthetical statement here. I believe this is the principle that is violated today when people mix the egg and the sperm you know, of other people other than their marriage partners in order to produce children for couples who otherwise cannot naturally conceive. So some people, you know, that, is that okay doing that? You know, uh, my husband and I, uh, I, I can't seem to, you know, uh, I can't seem to have children, so the doctor's going to take an egg out of the, my wife and a sperm from me, her husband, and they're going to put them together in a, in a dish and then put them back inside my wife. Is that okay? Yeah. It's not the normal way to conceive, but the, the big picture, the big principle, the one flesh principle, has it been violated? Well, no, it's still her egg, it's still my sperm, and they're both together to form a child made up of her and me, husband and wife. But if my wife's egg is now mixed with sperm X322 out of a sperm bank from another man, is there adultery there? No, of course not. There's no adultery there. There's no fornicate. There's nothing like that. That's the wrong way to argue this case. The, the principle that's being violated, according to this, my opinion, is that we're breaking this one flesh principle. We have added another flesh in this, 
in this equation. Not everybody agrees with what I say, but anyways, that's, that's an opinion of mine. As I say, no lust, no deception, not even any intercourse, but by taking the egg or the sperm of someone outside the marriage, we do violate this principle of one flesh. And God said, they shall be one flesh. He didn't, he didn't say, and they shall be married. He said, they'll be one flesh. Something is happening. Two flesh becomes one flesh. So this is what Abram and Sarai did. And they lived to regret it because the following verses show the natural human tendencies that follow when we violate God's basic guidelines for marriage and family. So what did Sarai do? First of all, she violated the one flesh principle. Number two, she took charge of God's promise. You know, the second way she violated God's will was taking charge of fulfilling God's promise for him. She saw no natural way for the promise to be fulfilled and so she devised a scheme to accomplish God's purpose. You know, it was the ends justify the means. The ends justify the means type of thinking. However, the unrighteousness of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. For example, uh, gambling games in order to raise money to build a new church building. No. You know, I, 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 I can't tell you how many people have come up to me with all kinds of schemes you know, to raise money in the church. And they do it, you know, it's a good heart, it's innocent, you know, they're not realizing what they're saying, usually young Christians, you know, enthusiastic. You know. Man, we need to raise money for missions? Well, let's have a lottery, you know, and, or let's have a, a bingo night. You know, and I'm thinking, no, you know, let's not do that. Well, why? Well, the Bible says the only way the church raises money is through a free will offering of the members. You know, the members decide they wish to give to the Lord, and we work with what the members give. You know, that's it. We don't have any other contraptions or games. We don't sell stuff. We don't have you know, golf tournaments. You know, as much as I'd love to do that, you know, I'd love to be out there. But we don't have those things. All right? So the end justifying the means. You know, this, is what was, this is what was going on here. So when God makes a promise, he has both the natural and the supernatural abilities of fulfilling his own promises. And Sarai did not understand this. She would in time. She would in time. You know, God promises to provide for our needs and He does this through natural means. He also promises to resurrect our bodies and this He will do through supernatural means. But He has the power to do, to do both things. So Sarai demonstrates that our short-term solutions don't always take into consideration God's power and God's plan for the long term. And in my own experience, I've realized that it's, it's a, a mistake that I've made many, many times, and that is I've forgotten the long picture. I, I only see the short picture. Uh, the excuse we have is, well, we have a short life. You know, we only live you know, 80, 90 years, maybe 95, 100, if, you know, if we have a strong constitution, but not much more than that. Well, that's a pretty short period of time. So we, we see things in the short view. And of course, God sees things in the, in the long view. So now we go to Hagar, Hagar's promise. Let's read uh, that, verses five and six. And Sarah said to Abraham, may the wrong done, be, uh, done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. 
But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her, uh, her presence. Of course, you know, Sarai blames Abram. Look what, you're, <laughs> look what you've done. And he said, what do you mean, what did, what did I do? I didn't do a thing. You know, well, he did do a thing, didn't he? <laughs> I don't know how hard it may have been to convince him you know, the, of this plan. You know? Anyways, the situation becomes intolerable because of the change in Hagar. You know, she's carrying the master's child. And Sarai's loss of face, her barrenness, is made even more, you know, the more pregnant Hagar becomes, the more obvious it becomes that Sarai is you know, barren. So Abram washes his hands of the matter. Since it wasn't his idea in the first place, he shouldn't have gone along with it. But uh, you know, he says, hey, she's your maid, your problem. So the girl is badly treated. She runs away, probably. Well, what is she trying to do? She's trying to go back home to Egypt. At least she, she may have family there. Let's keep reading, see what happens. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he says, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to, um, to her authority. So she's found not too far away in the desert, you know, way too long a trip for a woman alone, you know, to go all the way back to Egypt, especially when she's pregnant. The angel simply tells her to return to her, excuse me, her mistress, change her attitude, change her attitude. You know, don't be so proud. You know, Hagar had an attitude as well. After all, she's your mistress, you know, submit to her. So verse 10 says, Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him and he will live to the east of all of his brothers. So the angel tells her who and what will become of the child she is carrying. Now the term Ishmael means God hears, suggesting that she was praying to God for help and that in her time with Abram she learned and believed in God. So the, the good thing is that she, you know, she became a a believer in, in the God of Abraham, if you wish. So let's keep reading, 13 and 14. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God who sees. For she said, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Beer uh, Laheroi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and, uh, and um, Beret. So she called God El Roy, the God who sees as a tribute to her faith. She called the well, the well of the living one who sees. So she is told that her son will be a wild donkey, a wild ass of a man, one who would be in perpetual conflict with others. Hmm, how about that? Perpetual. Not that there will be conflict, perpetual conflict with his others. So the long history of Arab peoples who are the descendants of Ishmael 
testify to this fact that they have been in conflict with each other and with the Jews from then till now and beyond. Again, of course, should we always try to make peace? Of course. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Of course we should try to make peace. However, you know, um, it's sometimes a futile task to see an easy way to find uh, peace. And these passages in the Old Testament that we read about these peoples that will be in conflict with each other continue to bear themselves out over and over again and century after century that continue to be that way. So she's also promised that her son and descendants would be a great nations and has that been true? Yes, great number of people in that world. And then 15 and 16, she's promised, as I say, many descendants and turmoil between Ishmael and others. Then uh, verses 16, uh, 15 and 16, so Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. So there's no mention of her return, only that she bears a son, and that Abram names him Ishmael. Interesting point here that Abram names him Ishmael demonstrates that Abram and Sarai believed her account of her meeting with the angel and accepted her back into the home and also accepted her story that the angel said the child will be called Ishmael. Because in those days the woman didn't choose the name of the child, the father chose the name of the child and especially if it was the child of a slave so the fact that they named him Ishmael means that they believed her story of her encounter with the angel. All right, so now next section here, we're not going to read it. Uh, the covenant is renewed. 13 years go by in silence. And then when Abraham is 99 years old, God appears to him once again and renews his covenant. 13 years go by. Anybody here pray for 13 years for something? 12 years, you know what I'm saying? All I'm saying is it is not unheard of that 13 years goes by while you're waiting for something important to happen. Okay? In the economy of God, 13 years, you know. If He's giving us eternal life, 13 years a drop in the bucket, you know, for what? For, and usually it's 13 years waiting for something here on earth, which you're not going to keep for very long anyways. So, gets things into perspective. So this time there are a few changes. Uh, God calls Himself El Shaddai, which means Almighty God, suggesting that after a long period of silence, God is ready to put into force His promises. So He admonishes Abraham to be careful to walk in fellowship with Him. In other words, don't fall into disbelief, don't fall into disobedience. And that's usually the time we do that, while we're waiting for something to happen, while we're praying for a relief of some kind, that's when we get, you know, ah, this is too much, or oh, God has forgotten me, I might as well go back to the world, I might as well, you know, that's, that's the period in our life when we're most vulnerable, okay? So God warns him. And he changes, finally here, um, Abram's name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. 
and He extends all of the former promises, not only to Abram, but to Abram's descendants. You know, the protection, the land, the nation, all that stuff is going to be not just for Abraham, but it's going to be for his descendants as well. So we go to the covenant being confirmed. We pick up uh, chapter, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I showed you all these things. I had a slide. Uh, we go to chapter 17, verses 9 to 14. So we see God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Okay? Verse 11 and 12, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So in these verses, God gives circumcision, the word means to cut around, as a sign that would identify those who were included in the covenant. So in the last times that he's appeared, he's kind of told him what the covenant was. I'm your God, you're going to be my child, you're going to get the land, you're going to get the descendants, you will be honored through your people, the world will be blessed. You know, that's the covenant, those are the terms. Okay? So now that he changes Abraham's name and they're right on the edge of you know, Isaac being born, he now gives the sign of the covenant. There's been no sign so far. There's been no symbol of it. It's a promise between God and Abraham. Okay? So we know that circumcision has certain health benefits, but this was only a minor consideration in the giving of this practice as a way of showing that a person was in the covenant relationship with God. So circumcision represented many things. First of all, Promises of God were made to the seed of Abram, right? What does that mean, the seed? Well, his descendants, right? The generations. So uh, the physical organ that carried that seed from generation to generation would be permanently marked as a reminder of this. First and foremost, it was the sign you know, through which you know, the seed goes through this part of the body. So that part of the body is marked now permanently as a sign that this, this is how the seed is passed from generation to generation. The idea of the cutting around circumcision means the cut. And you know, God could have used something else. You know, put a V on your forehead. I mean, you know, cut, do something else. But He chose a very intimate uh, type of thing you know, for, for the sign. So the cutting around, as I say, what the word circumcision means and what it is, the cutting around of the foreskin on the penis, this also represented a complete enclosure of God's will. You will you'll be encircled by my, by my will and purpose. Number three, it was also a sign of faith. A faith on the part of the mother and the father who would have 
it done to their male children in obedience to God. So parental faith. And then faith on the part of the wife who would joyfully submit and enter a partnership with a man who was part of the covenant with God. In marriage, she would be a witness of the covenant because you know, they were naked and they were unashamed. You know, theoretically, you know, the only person that would see the man naked would be his wife. You know, yeah, maybe doctor, so on and so forth. But basically, the only person that would have intimacy with that man would be his wife and her vision of him also included her in the covenant. She was part of that covenant. Her faith was sealed because of her union with a man who was part of the covenant and because she was witness to the covenant. And then of course, personal faith, faith on part of the man who would continually be reminded by his own body that he belonged to God and he was not to use his body for sinful pleasure. So any man, any Jewish man, any man in the covenant with God would have to think twice. Certainly the, the danger, there's all kinds of sin, but in pagan religions, sexual sin was the most prevalent type of sin. So with this sign in the most private parts of your body, it would be a reminder, oh really, you're doing this, you, the circumcised one? Okay. And so it was a sign of faith, parental, conjugal, and personal faith. And then fourth, it was also a sign of sanctification. Circumcision was a sign of sanctification in the sense that the cutting away of the flesh represented the separation of that person from the sinful fleshly world and enter into a particular and separate and sanctified group of people. To refuse circumcision for oneself or one's family was to refuse all of these things and literally be cut off from the promises of God, and I don't mean that as a pun. So now we have the name change. In the last section of this chapter, three significant things appear. First of all, uh, excuse me, I've, I've, I've lost something here. Uh, yeah, so a name change. First of all, the name change. Sarai becomes Sarah, which means uh, princess. The second thing, God promises Abraham that Sarah herself will bear a son, first time mentioned. The reason I'm saying this here is I'm not going to read verses 15 to 27. I'm just kind of compressing what's in that section. Okay? So there's the name change for, for Sarai. She becomes Sarah, princess. Secondly, God provides Abraham uh, or promises Abraham that Sarah herself will bear a son. This is the first time that it's mentioned. He always says, you'll have a son, you'll have a son, you'll have a son, but this is the first time he says, you'll have a son with Sarah. You know, he specifies it, okay? Because that's what Abraham uh, did, um, and, and, and the child that they'll have together will be called uh, Isaac, which means laughter, because that's what Abraham did with joy when he was told. And since she will be the mother of many nations, her name is changed to Sarah, which means princess. And then the third thing that happens in those verses, Abraham circumcises himself, his son, and his entire household. He even prays for Ishmael 
since another is going to take his place. And he prays that God does not forget him and God promises to make a great nation from Ishmael. So you know, Abraham, Abraham loved Ishmael. That was his first son, his firstborn, right? So God is poised to fulfill one of his great promises made to, him, uh, to Abraham and that is to have his own child with Sarah. So we'll stop right there. That's where we'll stop for today and just draw a couple of lessons. I was a little fast there with my PowerPoint slide. Lesson number one, well, it's, I mean, it begs to be spoken, right? God's way is the right way all the time. It's tempting to change or eliminate God's word in various areas in order to accommodate new trends or pressures, but doing it God's way is always the right way. It may not be measured as successful or relevant by this world's standard, but God's purpose and methods are judged. You ever think about this? They're judged only by God, not man. We like to sit around and God judge, you know, judge God's stuff. You know? Only God judges His things, not us. We, our role is what? To obey. We've never been given the role to judge God's word. You know, let's take an easy one you know, because we're all familiar with it. We use a cappella music. You know, we, sing, we only sing in our worship services. There have been thousands of books written on the subject. You know, judging the effectiveness of this and that, but we're, we're not. Our role is not to judge that. Our role is simply to obey that. We have a lot of people you know, writing uh, commentaries about how much more effective and how much more appealing it is when we use uh, musical instruments and bands and you know, a more spectacular type of showmanship you know, for worship in order to draw people. You know? Yeah, but that's human beings judging God's ways as being ineffective, so we're going to replace, we're going to do it our way, and we, we see the short-term gain of that. Rather than simply seeing what God says we need to do and humbly doing it, you know, I mean. Uh, anyways, God's way is the right way. Uh, two, uh, circumcision is a type for baptism. That's really what I want to focus on. Circumcision serves to prepare us for the role of baptism in our lives. We know what types are, right? They're previews. So circumcision is a type for baptism, just like Abraham's a type for Christians and Melchizedek is a type for Christ. Well, circumcision is a type for baptism. It was a response of faith to God. It served as a sign to identify the believers. It was necessary to be part of the promise, circumcision. So in Colossians 2.11, Paul says, and in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of flesh by circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. So in the Old Testament, they removed the piece of flesh from an intimate part of your body to represent the idea that you were being cut away from the world and separated for a special purpose to be with God, to be God's people. So what Paul is saying, in the same way today, you're, you're being circumcised in a circumcision without hands. There's no knife, there's no hands. The circumcision happens is that your body of flesh dies, is taken away from you in the waters of baptism, and you come out of the water 
the baptism as a new person, holy, acceptable, righteous, forgiven, so on and so forth. Okay? So what Abraham did to his household with his hands, Christ does to us in the waters of baptism. He removes the flesh of sin from us, he brings us into the promises, and he gives us the Holy Spirit as the inward seal, represented by baptism as the outward seal of our salvation. In other words, what does baptism show? Well, it shows that I have the Holy Spirit within me. How do I know that? Well, Acts 2.38 tells us that. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So how do I know I have the Holy Spirit? Is it because I can speak in tongues? Is it because I can jump around? Is it because I have gift? No, I know I have the Holy Spirit because the Bible tells me that when I am baptized in the name of Jesus, God gives me the Holy Spirit. That's how I know it. So many people, a lot of times, you know, they're, they're not feeling very spiritual, so they think, oh, I guess the Spirit's left me. Oh, I guess the Spirit's come back because now I'm feeling great. You know, it has nothing to do with that. It's all about God promises you, if you do this, I will do that. That's what he said to Abraham. Well, he says to us today, if you do this, I will do that. That's how I know I have the Spirit. And I'll keep the Spirit. And then finally, wait for God. Come on, wait for God. It took years between the promise and the completion of the promise, but Abraham waited for God and he continued to believe. And you know he waited because he was happy to see him and ready to obey when he finally came. So today's lesson, of course, don't count the minutes or the days. Count on the sureness of His promises and the time, the time will not matter. I'm not saying that the time is not painful when we wait for something, but it won't matter because of what we have, because of the promises that, we, that we've received from God. Better to, wait, better to wait on God than to run ahead and try to fix it ourselves or try to abandon it ourselves. Great lesson, I love this section of Genesis. Okay, that's it, we're good. We're continuing on. Thank you for your attention.